your Bibles with you, turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We're going to be reading verses 39 through 46 this morning. I feel like I don't even need to preach. We can just sing that song a couple more times and you'll get the gist of what I'm about to say. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples, and he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So we pray that you would use it this morning to comfort us, to convict us to guide us and to strengthen us. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, just a little bit about me. Uh, One of my favorite TV shows, and Alice and I's favorite TV shows, uh, is The Office. And for some of y'all, if you haven't seen The Office, basically this is a show. It's a generic comedy. It's a fake documentary about a paper company and their daily life in the office. And the comedy of the show comes from the boss character, and the boss character's name is Michael. And Michael is one of those characters that's lovably awkward and unapologetically cringy. And one of my favorite scenes in this entire show comes when the Michael, the boss character, is having personal financial difficulties. And so he starts walking around the office trying to get uh, advice from his various employees about what to do with this financial difficulty. And one of the characters goes, well, If you want to get rid of all of your problems, you just need to go ahead and declare bankruptcy. So Michael kind of nods, and then he walks out into the main room where the whole company can see him. He kind of lets it get real quiet, and he screams at the top of his lungs, I declare bankruptcy, to which point the accountant walks over and goes, Michael, you can't just say it and expect something to happen, and which point Michael goes, well, I didn't say it. I declared it. And I love that scene because it's insane and it's hilarious, but it also kind of itches at a very important truth. And that is that there are a lot of things that are easier said than done. See, I think it's pretty easy to say, I'm going to go work out at 5.30 in the morning. It's another thing to go do that. It's easy to say, I'm going to get ahead at work this morning. It's another thing to do that. It's easy to say, I'm going to be on time to church this morning. It's another thing to be on time to church. See, there's a lot of things we say every day, and many of those things, when the rubber hits the road, they are a lot easier said than done. And so as we come to God's word this morning, I think we find the one saying of Jesus that might be the easiest to say, but the hardest to mean. See, in this passage, Christ is about to be betrayed by Judas over to be crucified. And so these are the last moments of Jesus's free life. And he comes before the Father in prayer and he asks if there is any other way to obtain the salvation of the world, would God spare him? Yet immediately after that, he says, nevertheless, 
not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus prays a prayer of surrender. Whatever the Father wills, Jesus surrenders to do, even though it will ultimately lead to his death. But this posture of surrender is not something that Jesus himself is supposed to just do, but rather he wants his disciples to do as well. See, Jesus wants us, his disciples, to be the ones who pray the same thing after him. Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. And so to show this, Jesus put the same request in the Lord's prayer. And so every week we pray the same thing. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So it's as easy as it is to say, and maybe for some of you, you didn't even process that you prayed that this morning. It's an incredibly different, different thing to mean it. Because to truly pray that prayer, and to mean what we say, it implies that we have a trust in God that is greater than any circumstance, greater than any circumstance or any problem that we could come against. And it means that we're willing to wholly rely on another to not be independent, but dependent. I think we all have experiences where we put our trust in something, a person or an institution or a thing, and we've had that trust broken. So to put our trust fully in God in that way, to surrender to God, if we're honest with ourselves, that is a very scary thing. And yet throughout Jesus' teachings, he constantly asks us to trust. He calls us not to control, but to surrender. And as his disciples, trust might be one of those most foundational characteristics. We ought to be the ones who are willing to say, no matter what I have or what I want, I am willing to lay it all down to know Christ. And it's when we live in that state of trust. It's when we live in that state of surrender, of open-handedness. That's where we find this good life that we've been talking about. So I want us to consider surrender this morning and the various ways that God might actually call us to surrender. What does that look like? To do so, I want us to keep this question in the forefront of our minds. How does surrender teach me to trust? How does surrender teach me to trust? Because when we trust, we begin to experience life as God meant it to be. So as we turn to the text, the first thing that surrender shows us is surrender shows us our need to trust. Surrender shows us our need to trust. And so as we turn to the text, we notice that there are a couple things happening here. The dominant part is that And when we read scripture, when Jesus repeats himself or the writer repeats himself intentionally, that means that there's something important there, something that we need to be picking up on, something essential. And the reason it's important here is because not only is Jesus himself surrendering in this story, but he wants the disciples to be surrendering as well. See, as Jesus does, so he wants his disciples to imitate even up to the very end. Verse 40, you'll notice that Jesus commands the disciples to pray that you won't fall into temptation. Pray that you won't fall into temptation. And we may be quick to read over that, but think about it. That's a radical request in its own right. Jesus is telling his disciples to begin praying that they won't fall into temptation. Notice the command is not, don't fall into temptation. It isn't be on your guard and make sure you don't fall for any tricks of the devil. No, the main command in that sentence is pray. And so right away, Jesus is teaching us about surrender and trust. And that surrender is not something you do on your own, 
but it's something we need God's power to do. It's not something you do on your own. It's something you need God's power to do. See, the disciples, they know the dangers of sin. They know the power of temptation. They've been the ones who have been on the front lines with Jesus throughout his entire ministry, waging war against sin and demons. And here they are at the very end, and they're told by Jesus that they need to go pray to God for the strength to combat sin. See, they can't do it on their own. They need help. So Jesus' command here reveals that in order for the disciples to do what Jesus is telling them to do, they don't need to just simply try harder, but they need to first surrender. I think this is so crucial because right away, Jesus is starting to redefine what we think the Christian life is all about. Because many of us know we need to trust. We know that in our brains. We know that God is providential and he's sovereign and that he cares for us. But oftentimes, we live out of a theology that emphasizes our own power and not resting on God's power. We hear God's commands either preached or we read it, and then all of a sudden, we start thinking about all the things that we need to do, the things that we need to be, the things that we need to accomplish, the checklist that we need to start checking off. And so the Christian life, whether or not we admit it or not, can oftentimes become this, well, Jesus died so that I can have a clean start but now it's on me to make sure that we keep it up, that we make sure we keep up that clean slate. And so what we do is we start looking around and we start looking for any sort of teaching, any sort of reading that we can read that will teach us how to be more self-sufficient, help us do the Christian things better. We want to be a better prayer. We want to be a better server. We want to be a better parent. And so we just start looking for the self-exalting ego boost. Because we think that that's what Jesus wants us to do. Because we think we need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to do it all on our own. And however, we forget one extremely important truth in that. In that we don't have the power to live this Christian life well at all. See, that's the major emphasis of our church's theology, is that we're sinners. We're broken from the outset. See, everything we try to do in our own strength will come up short. Even our best intentions, the things that we mean for good, will ultimately miss the mark. And so we need another way if we're going to follow God's commands. And Jesus is pointing us to it right here. He says that you don't actually need to be able to do it all. You don't need to be able to have the strength or the gift or the ability by yourself. Rather, you're called to trust him, to look to him, to rest in his power, See, the disciples can't fight off the power of temptation on their own, no matter how hard they try. Yet when they surrender to God, what do they find? They do find the strength. See, surrender teaches us to trust in the one who actually can sustain us. And that's a huge check on our pride, if you let that sink a little bit. Because oftentimes we believe that we can do it all on our own. We believe that we can raise our families apart from God's strength. We believe that we can run our businesses apart from God's strength. We believe that we can tend to our sick loved ones apart from God's strength. But ultimately, you can try, but you'll get tired. You'll get burnt out. Why? Because it wasn't meant to be that way. See, we live at the end of our rope so much because we're only willing to trust God with certain things, but we're not willing to trust him with everything. However, when we begin with surrender, when we begin with open hands, when we begin by trusting in God for his strength, what do we find? We find the power of Christ to sustain us. 
the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. So surrender reveals that we can't do it all, but guess what? We don't have to. We can rest in the power of a Savior who did accomplish it all for us. So that's number one. Surrender teaches us of our need to trust. And number two, surrender challenges our desires. Surrender challenges our desires. And so we come to probably what's the most important and maybe well-known part of this passage, and that's Jesus praying to the Father, asking uh, shortly before he's about to die for the sins of the world, asking if the Father will let this cup pass from him, let this cup pass from me. And the cup is a symbol of God's wrath. That's what Jesus is referring to. And so Jesus is asking if there's any way for the judgment of sin not to fall on him and everyone still be saved. Yet in the same breath, he also surrenders himself. Says, not my will, but thy will be done. There's been a lot of ink spilled on this passage. There's been a lot of questions that have been brought up. And we can sometimes get a little squirrely because think about it. Jesus is asking if he can get out. He's wanting out. He's asking God if there's another plan. Does he actually have to go through with this? See, Jesus wants to live. He doesn't want to die. I think it's so interesting to reflect on this because so often we can fall into this line of thinking, and the church has been connoting this for a long time and implying it, that to desire anything else apart from God and what God wants is immediately sinful. That we need to be, as Christians, those who want and crave God all the time and that to enjoy anything else is immediately sinful. An example would be if I want to go play with golf with my friends instead of show up to a church dinner for the third night this week, I'm automatically a sinner. See, we think the Bible commands us that we need to forsake all earthly loves and be so heavenly-minded all the time. And yet, here is Jesus who has an earthly desire. He wants to live and not die. And yet, this doesn't compromise him to sin, does it? Jesus is still perfect when he goes to the cross. So when Jesus says, not my will, but thy will be done, what's he actually doing? Well, Augustine, an old church father, says that he's doing what we call ordering his loves. Ordering his loves. See, Jesus loves the Father, but he also loves to live. And so when Jesus surrenders his will, what he's not doing is making the claim that somehow he shouldn't love his life, but rather that he's willing to give up his lesser loves for the ultimate one, that being the Father himself. His surrender actually shows you what he loves most. To give you kind of a modern example of what I'm talking about, uh, I hate needles. I absolutely hate needles. And so anything that has to do with a needle, I would rather avoid. And I'll avoid it with a 10-foot pole. Like, I'm not going near it. And that's why I get terrified every time I have to go to the doctor's office. Because I love my comfort and I love not getting jabbed with needles. However, I also love to be healthy. I love to hike and I love to be outside and I love to have energy. And sometimes that requires me to have to go get a blood test make sure that everything's okay, to make sure that I'm still healthy, to make sure that I'm still able to do the things I love to do. So notice that puts me in a really precarious spot sometimes. I could either forego my love of comfort to be healthy, or I could forego my love of being healthy in order to be comfortable. And what I surrender in that moment will show you what I ultimately love most. 
See, in our lives, we all have things that we love that are not all evil things. See, a lot of our desires are good things. It's good to love your family. It's good to love your hobbies. It's good to love other people. Yet at the end of the day, because of the sin that's inside us, we often choose to pursue our lesser loves at the expense of God. See, where God's love and power ought to be our ultimate love, the thing that sustains and fills us and gives us ultimate purpose, what do we do? We look elsewhere. And this is how we make an idol. And so therefore, as Jesus prays, not my will, but thy will be done, what's he doing? He's reorienting himself to what he loves most. He's essentially saying, Father, I love my life. But for the glory of your name and the salvation of your people, not my will, but thy will be done. See, I'm going to surrender my earthly desire so that your greater plan might unfold. So surrender forms us by challenging our desires at every turn. See, as God calls you to come and die, life doesn't mean that we necessarily define what the good life is. We don't necessarily define what the good life is, but we surrender it to God because he knows what it is. He knows what it is. See, surrender gives way to a desire that longs for Jesus himself because only Jesus can satisfy. Nothing else can. So surrender not only teaches us of our need to trust, it challenges our desires, but it does one more thing in that surrender comforts us to trust. Surrender comforts us to trust. And so surrender comforting us, and I think some of y'all, that's a weird statement to make, isn't it? Because when we think of surrendering, we think of vulnerability, we think of danger, we think of defeat. None of those are generally a comforting thing. However, in verse 43, we see that God responds to Jesus's prayer of surrender by sending an angel to strengthen and comfort him. I want you to note something really big here. Jesus's prayer of surrender is not answered the way that Jesus prayed it. See, Jesus wanted to live, but the outcome of the whole story is that Jesus is still going to die for the sake of the world. See, nothing about surrender, nothing about Jesus's prayer of surrender changes the circumstances of Jesus. He still has to endure the cross. And it also doesn't change the reaction of the disciples to the whole thing. See, going into the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples are clueless. The disciples have no, thing, like, no idea what's going on. They're, they're sad, but they don't know what's going on. And seeing Jesus in this full state of surrender where he's in anguish, like blood is dripping from his face, it doesn't inspire the disciples to draw near, to ask how he's doing, to relieve his pain. What are they doing at the end of the story? They're still sleeping. And the point I want to make here is that all of the problems that Jesus went into the garden with, he leaves the garden with. The fear of death, the clueless disciples, he leaves with it. See, surrender didn't somehow magically fix the problems of Jesus. And I think this is so key because whether we admit it or not, and I would be the first in line to admit this, we believe deep down, and we may not say it, but we believe it deep down that when we surrender to God, he'll fix our problems. When our loved one is sick, and we surrender ourselves to God, we just trust that God will heal them. When we surrender our business, we believe that God will finally help us turn a profit. 
When we surrender our family to the Lord, we believe that our kids will turn it around. And we have come into this idea that surrender means that there's automatic redemption of our circumstances. We may say we know better, but we still act like that's true. However, many of us know that even when we're fully surrendered, even when we open up the deepest parts of ourselves to God, that doesn't mean all of our problems go away. See, loved ones still die. Financial crises still leave us anxious. Tragedies still happen. Families still have issues. So the question becomes, why should we surrender to God when potentially nothing changes? What's the point of that? And the answer is that surrender opens the door for God to draw near to us. It says in Psalm 34 that God draws near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. See, the greatest gift that God could ever give you is himself. He comforts his people, and he never leaves us. And so, yes, we experience trials that test our limits, and we experience circumstances that put us at the end of our rope, but it's in these moments of surrender when we cast all that we can understand onto God, that's where he makes himself more known. And friends, that's what we need because our hearts were made for God and they're restless until they find him. And so he may not take you out of the garden. I don't know what you came in here struggling with. We're all struggling with something. He may not take you out of the garden just because you sang Waymaker a little extra loud today. But he sure isn't leaving your side. Not for a moment. And he will never let anything befall you that isn't meant for his good or for your good in his glory. See, God never promised an easy life, never promised that if you put your faith in him, everything will go your way. I think Jesus would be the first to testify to that. But he did promise that he would be close to his people. And so God draws near to you this morning, and he seeks to form you for a life that is deeper and richer than you ever thought possible. And when we surrender the things that we hold so tightly, when we are willing to say, not my will, but thy will be done, what happens? We begin to see past the murk. We begin to see past the fear and anxiety, and we start to get a sense of what life might be like in the presence of God. And so surrender comforts us. Why? Because when we are surrendered to God, God can draw near to us, and that's what we need. In closing, I'll tell this quick story. So at my old church, I was a VBS volunteer uh, one year, and one year I worked with preschool kids. And so a lot of these kids didn't come from our church. This was, they, we were all new people, so they were getting dropped off. And what do you think happens? I mean, they are kicking and screaming and sobbing, and they just refused to listen to anything we had to say. They wanted to do their own thing. Obviously, they're in an uncomfortable, uh, but it was just utter chaos. And it wasn't until about middle of the morning when this glorious thing happened. Snack time. And we put the Ritz crackers out on the napkins, and you would have thought they were the most beautiful, behaved, respectful angels you have ever met. And it's funny how when the kids got a glimpse of the Ritz cracker, it encouraged them to trust and listen. And rather than kicking and screaming and going their own way, perhaps there might be something better than if they were just to surrender and listen to their teacher. So often we're like those preschool kids. We think we know what's best. We think we know the things that we want on our own terms and in our own way. 
Yet in the story of Jesus in the pages of scripture, what we find is a picture of life that is greater than anything you can imagine for yourself. Peace, joy, love as it was meant to be, relationship unstained and fear removed. And what it requires of us is simply surrender, to run to the feet of our Savior because we trust that he could take us somewhere better than we can get ourselves. So as we go from this place and as we consider surrender, I pray that we would not see it as a burden, but as a blessing. It's an easy thing to say, thy will be done. It's another thing to mean it. Yet when we do so, we are being formed. Surrender teaches us to trust. And when we trust, we begin to taste the good life as it was meant to be, something greater than anything we could ever imagine. Let me pray for us. Lord, not our will, but yours be done. Lord, we confess that sometimes we don't have the full picture. We don't know why you do things. We don't know why we go through the things that we go through, but Lord, would you teach us to trust? Would you, as Brian prayed earlier, would you align our hearts with yours? What breaks your heart breaks ours. Lord, what makes you joyful? Would it make us joyful? Would we be those who are fully surrendered? Would we hold on to nothing because we know that you can fulfill the deepest desires of our hearts? We pray this in the strong and saving name of Jesus.